Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. I go back to, you ever have that perfect dry fly cast and you needed five more feet of line out there because your fly hit the end and it jerked back? That's kind of what the tuck cast is like. It'll get out there, but it stops and it will drop straight down and it has a little bit of slack built up so it can get down to the bottom without doing that slow arc. That was Tom Starmack with a little casting love to start your day. The Driftless Spring Creeks and Tom's Top Euronymphs today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Have you checked in with me yet? Have you been listening for a while and not yet uh, connected with me on email or online on social? You can send me an email right now, dave at wetflyswing.com. Would love to hear from you if we haven't connected and just uh, just leave a uh, whatever message you want to say. Let me know if the show's been helpful, if you've been enjoying it, um, if you have any feedback for upcoming episodes. Today's episode is sponsored by Bear Vault, who has the perfect solution to keep your provisions secure while heading into the backcountry this year. Bear Vault uh, uses a rugged polycarbonate locking cancer to keep bears and wild animals out of your stuff this year. You can check them out right now. Just head over to wetflyswing.com slash bear vault. And uh, that's B-E-A-R-V-A-U-L-T. And you support this podcast by clicking over to that link to Bear Vault. Today's episode is also sponsored by Angler's Coffee, roasting a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. They've got a dry dropper tea bag option. They've got all sorts of different tastes and flavors to meet your needs. I guarantee you're going to find something you're going to love. It's awesome coffee. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash anglers right now to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. That's A-N-G-L-E-R-S. Anglers! Tom Starmack takes us back into the Driftless to find out how he works his Spring Creek magic. We hear the story of how he fishes the super skinny water, what his Euro uh, rig looks like on small waters, and some tips on stocking Spring Creeks. And this is some good stuff. He's got some good tips in here on like how you present it to the fish without spooking those little guys. We're taking you back up into the stars today and back down to earth. So without further ado, here he is, Tom Starmack from ZoeticFlies.com. How's it going, Tom? Pretty good. How about yourself, Dave? Not too bad. Thanks for uh, thanks for getting a little time this morning. It sounds like you were out in the, um, the, was it the chicken coop? Yep, it's a chicken coop. Nice. We live on a farm, an old dairy farm uh, built in the mid-1800s, mid-1880s. Oh, wow. And the previous owners added a second story to the chicken coop for their grandkids as a bunkhouse. And we gutted it. And the upper level is now my fly tying area. Oh, wow. That's cool. So you're above, you got a cool office fly tying area above the, is it still a chicken coop below? No, 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 no. No. Chicken stink. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So you transform this uh, this place into pretty much just yeah. You got your office and stuff. So is this a what's around you? Are you uh, are you kind of out in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, our closest neighbor is about a half mile away. Oh, that's cool. We have uh, thirty five acres of mostly woods. Oh wow! Yep, woods. And is there any any water around anywhere? 
yeah, there's a lot of underground creeks and streams around here. We have five, I think, on our property. And then um, one comes out on the surface and another creek crosses the front yard, but it's too small to fish. Oh, gotcha. And uh, and how far are you from, uh, Are you? is this up, are you in the, like, near the Driftless area? Yes. I'm kind of between La Crosse and the Dells in that general area. So I'm still part of the Driftless. I'm on what I would consider an outer edge of prime Driftless. Uh-huh. But I have to I have to travel maybe four or five minutes to get the fishable water. Gotcha. Yeah, that's not bad at all. Right no, on. No, not at all. We're we're gonna dig in today. You know, we had a topic. Uh, we covered the Driftless. Uh, you know, quite a while ago uh, when Jason Randall was on, and uh, it's you know it's come up a few times over the years. It's definitely one of those places that's you know is a cool. You know, I think a lot of people are trying to get up to one of those destinations, right? So we're gonna. We're going to talk about that a little more and Zoetic Flies, some of the stuff you're doing with, um, you know, maybe focusing on Euro nymphs and things like that today. Um, but uh, yeah, take us back a little bit. Just, I always like to start kind of in fly fishing. Tell us how you first got in, and then we'll, we'll bring it into uh, like how it became Zoetic. Well, when I first started fly fishing, I was 13 or 14. I was an, I grew up in Minnesota, so I'm an avid fisherman. And I was reading, you know, in Fishman, Fishing Facts, which I think was Fishing Facts, was primarily the one around there. And I read about fly fishing. And I decided to, let's try this for a change. And so I got, you know, the Wopsy fly tying kit and a fly rod and played around mostly with bass and panfish and that and just, you know, had a riot with it. And then um, went off to college and I stopped fly fishing and I picked up fly fishing about 30 years later. After still fishing, um, picked up fly fishing, mostly as I call it self-defense. A group of friends would go on these trips and it was fly fishing only trips. And if I wanted to go along and have fun, I had to pick up fly fishing again. There you go. And, and so I did. And then once I got into it fishing again, I started, you know, slowly tying my own flies again and had fun with that. Um, left the corporate world was looking for something else to do and a friend of mine jason randall who you've had on the show before yep. said well why don't you tie flies commercially you know you like to do that you know change direction do something that you really enjoy well he eventually convinced me to try it and i've had a lot of fun with it ever since that's amazing so you left uh Another story of leaving the kind of the job you, you didn't enjoy and then and jumped into, um, you know, fly tying, right? So it was mainly fly tying. Did you did you do that for a while before you got into, eventually you got into like the show circuit? Did that come after Zoetic Flies or describe that a little bit? Uh, they actually kind of came around at the same time. Jason was working on me just, you know, you enjoy this, try it. Just go ahead and try it. See what can happen. And he called me up one day and said that Ben Frimsky, who has the fly fishing show, was going to be in town. And they were going to do a cast and blast. They were going to go pheasant hunting in the morning and then go after steelhead in the river in Wisconsin in the afternoon. And he goes, come with us, meet him, talk to him, show him your flies. You know, he'll review them, critique them, and then decide whether he'll let you apply for it because he he's pretty strict on who he likes to tie at his show 
likes good tires, people who are willing to talk to people, teach techniques and that. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And if he says, okay, then I'll try one of the shows. And so, so we had pheasant hunting, had fished in the afternoon, and I gave him a box of my flies. And he critiqued them, in my mind, ripped them apart and all <laughs> that, which he, he did. And it's like, well, this is the end of it. And he goes, I'll send you an application. Yeah. And so I hadn't really officially started the business yet. And I am scheduled to go to Lancaster as my very first fly fishing show is a national circuit show. So talk about jumping in with, you know, both feet right into the frying pan. But uh, it was a lot of fun. That was it. So you're in it. I remember when I talked to, um, we had Chuck Frimsky on and I asked him, he told the story about how the, you know, that show came to be way back in the day. And, and I asked him a question about choosing, um, you know, I'm sure Ben does it similarly or maybe a little bit different, but how do you choose? He calls them the celebrities, right? You're a celebrity. And, yes. uh, and I was like, and I asked him how you choose a celebrity, especially when you have people like Lefty Cray, others like that, that leave, or even, you know, sometimes right pass away. Did you replace somebody who was a fly tire on the circuit or, or like, do you have any idea? Like, cause there's not that many people that do it. Uh, not that followed around to multiple shows. Oh, okay. Um, the, a lot of times they've got multiple tiers. They have people who just come to tie for fun. Maybe they're in a local tying club or something like that. And they have space for people to come and just demonstrate tying. A lot of times you'll have TU organizations come through or a local tying oh, group yeah. will, will have a bench and they'll have it manned throughout the show. Then you have professional tires like myself who maybe they only do a, a, a local show. Um, I've done in one year, I've only done three national shows. Then you'll have somebody like, Tom Baltz out from Pennsylvania. Um, he does, I think, all of Ben's shows because he's a tire. He's also a guide and at that level. And I think what happened was there happened to be space at Lancaster because it was after the time when normally you're supposed to sign up for the show. And so he had space at Lancaster and, you know, they let me in. It was... Um, Interesting. Yep. That's it. What was that like, your, your first show? Well, I'm, I'm talking to the guys on either side of the booth, and it's, this is your first show? Yeah, I've never done a fly tying show before. And these are guys who, local tires, regional tires, kind of work their way up in there, and my first show is, is a national show. And then, because I've known Jason Randall for around 30 years he comes over and brings ed jeverowski and lefty cray over to my booth to meet me hmm. now lefty didn't interact a whole lot with the tires because they kept moving him from demonstration to talk to demonstration oh they kept him busy the whole day yeah so it wasn't that he wasn't friendly because he was i'd met him in the past very friendly guy you know yeah but they kept him on a tight schedule well, Jason brought those two guys over, got my photo with them, and they stayed talking in my booth for about 15 minutes. And the guys on the other side of me were just looking at me like, what the heck? Lefty doesn't do this. Right. He just doesn't have time. This is your first show. 
you get Lefty Crate in your boat for 15 minutes. You're laughing, having fun. Who are you? <laughs> it's like, I'm just me. It's in this case, it was who I know. Right. That's right. It's who you know, not not what you know, but who you know. No, that's mm-hmm. that's awesome. And yeah. uh, and so this and this was like you said before Zoetic Fly Roy got going. So you're just just starting kind of the that part of the business. Correct. I think I may have had tied one order at that point. I tied a bunch for Jason uh, for some of his photos and the, his demonstrations. I tied a bunch of flies for him that he wanted to look at. I had tied one order as part of that. My website had just gotten set up because I knew enough and had a friend who who does that stuff to get the website going and an online store going. But prior to the show, I think I had maybe one order because nobody's really going to know it. And it's kind of hard to find for somebody new. And, you know, sold some flies at Lancaster, started to grow a little bit more, did more shows the following year. Business kept growing as you get out in front of people, as, as you know, and, you know, like I said, it's been growing. I've been having a lot of fun. I really enjoy the shows because you can sit down and you can talk to people about fishing. Yeah, that's it. That's why the shows are great. You chat and it's all fishing. And then you probably see, you know, after the shows, do you see a pretty good return on, on your time? Do you get people, you know, kind of customers from that and connecting with people? I, I get some customers. I have some that are repeat customers who I had uh, one couple one time down in Atlanta. And I think they were trying to outbuy each other in flies. And they each bought like six dozen flies. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I get an email from one of them saying, hey, I'm going to be buying more flies. We lost them all, but I want to get them before Megan gets them. <laughs> and then I got then I got an uh, Instagram message from Megan saying I need to get in before Gunder gets them. And so, you know, you build up some repeat customers that way. And that's to me is is a lot of fun. Yeah. I went down the second year I was down in Atlanta. I had two people come up to me and say, Oh, great, we found you. We were afraid you weren't gonna be here because we didn't see your name in the program. And they said, and then I realized that you were listed with the tires, not with the vendors. Right. So when you have people coming back to look for you, yeah, you know, that's very gratifying. That's a big thing. Yeah, this is this is good. I like the intro. I, I want to dig in, like we said, to the some driftless and uh, maybe some Euro uh, kind of nipping. Um, but you mentioned Jason. I'm just curious on him. You've known him a long time. How did you connect with uh, Jason originally? Uh, him and his wife uh, were vets, mm. and so we've had dogs and cats for years. And when we moved out to Illinois, we were looking for a vet and we eventually came across them Hmm. and talking to him, you know, when I think we had four dogs at the time and a couple of cats. So we're in the clinic fairly often and was talking with them and nobody both like fishing and that. So we started fishing, um, actually at night out on Lake Geneva for bass. And we eventually started fishing more. He got me into upland hunting. And then it's just, you know, we've been hanging out for years. Hmm. There you go. Yeah, you guys have been doing that. And Jason's, uh, obviously, he's been doing the, uh, the the show circuit, right? He he knows kind of everybody. And, and now that you've been yep. doing how many how many years have you been doing the show circuit now? Uh, I think 26. Oh, wow. 18. 
was my first. 2016. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, I ended up not doing any shows this year just because they didn't know what kind of turnout there would be traveling in that. So it's like, well, let's just take a year off and just do a couple of local shows. Well, unfortunately the two local shows I was going to do were canceled. So I ended right. up not doing this year plan on going back again and, and doing some more shows next year. Next year. Yeah. That's the cool thing about the years. The years seem to fly by faster and faster. So the, you know, the winter January comes really quick, even if you miss it, right? It's already, it's almost, well, it's, as we're talking, it's August now, which is amazing. And, and geez, I mean, it's going to fly right by. We'll be into the winter again, right? Yep. Nice. So, well, let's talk about, you know, we might talk about the Driftless in the winter. I wanted to take people in, like we said, it's a top, in fact, I think I even found an article out there by some, it was a local TU chapter. Um, somebody did a really nice article on the Driftless. I'll, I'll try to find that and put a link out, but he kind of walked through a lot of the details. But there's a lot of questions people have, you know. Um, but but start off with, with the Driftless first. We talked to Jason, mentioned a little bit about this, but, um, you know, it sounds like this is, uh, you know, maybe your home water or something, you know, nearby. What is the Driftless, you know, when you see it out there? What, why why is it such the, the attraction, the destination for people? Um. Well, let's go back a little bit to the driftless is called that because the glacier drift never went through filling in ruts, flattening out areas. So we have a lot of hills and valleys um, that, for instance, uh, Illinois, Iowa doesn't have for most of it. You know, they got right. flattened out. And so we have a lot of hills and valleys. There are a lot of spring creeks around here. That, that's the, to me, that is the big attraction. It's all the spring creeks. Mm-hmm. It's, it's smaller waters you can walk along them in most cases you don't even necessarily have to get in the water and you have a mix of woods water agriculture you, you've got farmland you've got cattle in the area and that and for me that's the perfect combination of landscape i like to be in it's a nice little mix yeah and then from a fishing standpoint a lot of it is smaller, skinnier water. You, we don't, a little bit further south, we have some bigger rivers, but nothing like you would have up west. And so the fish tend to be smaller based on the, on the water and that. But the density is very good. Um, depending on the waters, you could have somewhere between three and 5,000 fish in a mile. Oh, wow. And so it's actually... I think some of the best fishing in the country. Mm-hmm. Now, generally speaking, 12 inches is a nice fish. You might see some 14s and 16s and so on. Yeah. 20s a whopper. But they're here. And they're fun fish. We've got uh, primarily brown trout. There are some brookies. And a little bit further south of where I am, there's more rainbow that they've stocked. Yeah, so you're fishing small water, and by small water, what would be an average like width of the, you know, of the of the creek, on average? So would you say? Um, a lot of cases, fifteen twenty feet. Yeah, fifteen twenty feet. There you go. I fished some that have gone out to thirty to forty, and I've yep. fished some that have been five feet. Yeah, you got a mix. There's a mix, but somewhere between that and fifteen, say twenty feet, is definitely small enough that you're fishing. What, what is it like uh, four weight? Is that kind of what you're fishing mostly? Uh, when I'm urine niffing, I'll use primarily a two weight. Oh, right. 
because you have to remember with with the urolymphine the end might be a two eight but the butt is probably more like a four maybe yeah. even a five so you can put a lot of pressure on it when i do dry flies i like a three maybe a four depending on how windy it is i can just punch through higher winds with a little bit easier with the four than with the three yep and most casts don't have to be more than 30 35 feet usually so it, it's close fishing mm-hmm. do you do you find yourself throughout the year you know fishing kind of equal amounts dry flies and the euro game uh no for most of my time i've spent concentrating on the euro niffing Part of it is because when I started doing tying and looking for my niche commercially, I focused in on, on Euro niffing because there weren't a lot of people tying those kinds of flies. So it's like, here's the little niche for me. And so I concentrate more on fishing that style, testing out flies, seeing if they worked, how to change patterns, things like that. Um, but the last couple of years, I've gone back to doing a little bit more dry flies than I have in the past. Be, and I remembered how much fun dry fly fishing is. You know, you see a little sip, you get that big sploosh take. Yep. And so I still probably do 75, 80% euro and maybe, you know, 20 dry. And that last little percent, I may switch between some streamers um, in some waters. I may use a suspension device to get across the waters and float it if if a big old foam terrestrial won't keep it up yep so you mix up a little bit you're not all and and on the euro niffing did you was that something that uh, well i know uh, jason obviously i think he touched on that in the episode we did uh, but it, you know we've talked to a few of the competition guys does it where does the euro like if somebody gets started where, where did you do you remember i mean it's been a while but when you first started learning about it or that i guess probably jason right he was probably a big influence jason was a big influence because he started learning it when i started doing more fly fishing and so jason loves to teach and he come up and say look come on let's go fishing i'll show you what i learned i just spent some time with lefty cray or i spent some time with ed engel or landon meyer and look what i learned and so I learned from some of the best people in the world through Jason. And so for me, you know, going fishing with a friend who's learning from some of the best in the world, filtering it down to you. And since that's where he was concentrating in at that point, I learned it too. Yeah. And part of me enjoys your own nipping more than dry flies because I have to focus more when I Euro nymph than I do dry fly. Mm. Because if you make, make a mistake, Euro nymphing, you're in the bush, you're, you're in the bottom, you're snagged up. Dry flies, you can lose focus a little bit during the retrieve. And yes, you'll miss fish when you don't focus, but I'm not going to have to risk blowing up the water to, to get my fly out or I end up breaking off. Yeah. yeah. So it forces me to focus more. Yeah. Yeah, bet you're right. It, it is your nipping is not an easy thing. I mean, do you are you doing some guiding out there? Or is this mostly the show stuff? Uh, the only guiding I do there is an, an organization called Ultra Fly Fishing. Um, it's a Christian organization where the minister is trying to merge in faith and fly fishing into, as he calls, into one stream. 
Hmm. And so I'll do guiding for them or help out with some stuff when they're out in the driftless, when they have retreats up here. Hmm. Gotcha. But I, I am definitely not a guide. Not a guide. Yeah. How do you like that? Do you find that when you do that type of guiding, is it uh, pretty challenging or pretty easy? It varies. Um, of course, it depends on who you're fishing with. I've, I've been able to guide some people who are very experienced and they're pretty much take me to the area. Give me a few yeah. tips. Go for it. Let me on my, on my own, check up with them a little bit every so often. How are you doing? What's this here? Try this maybe, you know, yeah. then, then go, you know, they're, they're pretty much good all on their own. Yeah. The more inexperienced people who need more help tend to go with people we've had, um, Dave Blackburn out here helped before, a very experienced guide, Nathan Flowers, um, again from out west, very experienced guide. The inexperienced people tend to go with them. I tend to get those who, who want to do more Euronymphine, who are more at least moderate um, fishermen. My guiding skills are such that inexperienced people I'm not great with. Mm, yeah, the 101, like basics start here, here's how to cast sort of thing. Yeah, I can help them. I can show them. I can do that. But me spending all day on the water with them is not best for them. Yep. There you go. That's that's good to know. I mean, that's something I think everybody finds out. You're just, we've talked about this before, you know, but it seems like the guides, the really good guides are just, they're like built for it, right? They love the teaching. They love helping somebody learn their, you know, and they have patience galore. Today's episode is sponsored by Jackson Hole Fly Company. They may sound like a new company to you, but they've been designing and manufacturing high-quality gear since 1978. 1978, that was a heck of a long time ago, and there's some history there. thats um, I don't want to age myself, but that wasn't long um, around the time I was born. But in 2020, they launched JH Flyco and started selling gear directly uh, to people all over the country. They have a huge selection of fly rods, reels, lines, all sorts of stuff. You can check them out right now at JH Flyco, and you actually can get uh, 25% off right now on your first order. If you go to jhflyco.com swing, and you also get free shipping on orders over $50. We got some good stuff going with uh, Jackson and JH Flyco this year. Uh, we're doing a top fly challenge as we speak. So uh, if you want to head over to that Top Fly Challenge, you can always grab a chance to win some flies and check it out right now. But if you want to support this podcast and support a great fly shop, you can head over to jhflyco.com swing. Check it out right now. 25% off. Okay, back to the show. Well, let's talk. We mentioned the Driftless, so I, let's do a quick little primer just maybe on a, kind of the seasons really quick and then... And then we'll jump into more on the Euro and we'll talk a little more about that. So, so right now, I mean, we're, we're kind of mid summer, you know, what's that look like? So right now, uh, August, September, October, is this a pretty prime time to be heading up there? Or what's that look like? Uh, for me, it's not my favorite time. It's hot. The waters can get a little bit lower. They tend to run pretty clear. So it's tough fishing. Additionally, depending on some areas, the weed growth around the waters and getting to the waters is humongous. You can have weeds six feet, eight feet, and everywhere in between. And there is a lot of what's called wild parsnip or poison parsnip. 
um, if you get the sap on you, it burns the skin. Oh, wow. And during for a long time. And there's a lot of stinging nettle around here. So high weed growth for by this time of the year, a lot of water is pretty inaccessible unless you can get in and you actually work your way up the whole stream and stay in the water. Right. So this is not my favorite time of the year, but I'll do more um, dries and hoppers during this time. My favorite time actually is early in year, March, April, May. So the years around here, the season actually opens January 1st. Okay. But until mid-March, I think it is, it's catch and release only. And, you no, know, we're in Wisconsin. It gets cold. So there's a lot of days where, you know, you can't go fishing. So they're few and far between for really comfortable days. But there's some very good fishing in here. It's slower because the water's much colder than that. But you've got no competition, pretty much. Then um, March, April, May, I think, are some of the best. You've got the bugs starting starting coming off and that. Um, water's warming up, the fish are getting more active. And so it's just great. The weeds are all down, so you have very little trouble getting in and out of areas, even if you're, you know, going back a quarter to a half mile with some of these waters. Yep. Is that part of the, you know, when you're out there, is it kind of are people out there kind of exploring <clears throat> hiking long distances, camping out there? How does that look, you know, overall? Um, depends on the area of the drift that you're talking about where I am, I'm close to the Kickapoo Valley reserve and Wallacat mountain state park. So there there's camping available in the reserve. There's some campgrounds out in technically I think it's the West be another town, but there's, there's campgrounds in there. So you got a lot of campers coming in. You have a lot of people coming in for trips uh, nationwide coming to the area because it, it's spring. They're starting to fish again in that. And one of the biggest advantages around here is the DNR working with the farmers in TU have done a great job of making, of improving the waters and making it accessible to the public. I live in Vernon County. There are over 60 classified trout streams and 250 miles of public access. Oh, wow. And, and that's just one county. I think for the whole driftless area in Wisconsin, there's maybe 5,000 miles of public access. To me, that's a huge difference between, say, out west, where you have different uh, property rights and water rights. Yeah, that's huge. That's a lot of that's a lot of land, and it. And there's some places where, yeah, big rivers, even with property, you can float it. But here, you're not really, like you said, you're not floating, drifting any of the rivers. You're pretty much walking in. Correct. There, there are some that you can, you can run a boat on maybe a little bit further north or, or further south of us, but not something that a lot of people do. Um, so to me, it's all walking. And I, and I like that because um, years ago, I was scouting the area one time and I went to a place, fished it a little bit, didn't do much, hopped to another place on the same stream, fished it a little bit, went someplace else, somebody was there, moved up to another spot. So in, in one day of fishing, hopping around, checking it out, I hit eight or nine spots on like seven different creeks. 
And so that's a lot of fun because a lot of times somebody goes out somewhere and they hit a place and that's all they're going to hit. And they have maybe a quarter mile, half mile stretch at best because of other fishermen. I have out here a lot more to choose from. Right. That's great. And can easily change. Yep. That's the way to do it. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was, one of the questions I was thinking about, like, so somebody's coming in and uh, maybe they're coming down from down South and they're, it's their first time up there. What, what is the, you know, to find out where to go? It sounds like in your area, there's all sorts of places. Do you, is there like a, a resource or something that guides people or what would you recommend if somebody doesn't even know where to start? Okay. In Viroqua, there is the Driftless Angler Fly Shop. Yep. Is that Jerry? Yeah, Matt and Jerry. And Jerry also has, uh, please let me get the order right, Artemis and Athena, women's fly shop where she sells women's gear. Oh, yeah. And so they're a great resource. They have guides. They'll help you with it. Um, and just in general, there's also uh, the Wisconsin DNR websites has trout maps saying here's the classification of waters one two three here's where public access is mm-hmm. so you can do some research on your own beforehand yep and when you go up there it's pretty much find some public access and like like a lot of places just go in hike as far as you want to maybe if you have to get away from some people but fishing there's gonna be plenty of fish around probably wherever you go yeah yeah and, and some of it is you do have to pay attention to what truly is public access because on say a a seven mile creek maybe only three of it is public access and maybe there's a mile at one point then there's two miles that's private and then there's then there's some more public access yeah so you have to pay attention to that um there's a lot of cattle on many of the streams and so there may be occasionally a fence across the stream to keep the cattle in there and if there's further public access, there might be a style over the fence at that point, or that's the end of it. And then you have to go back and then you, you skip the private waters to hit some more public access. Yeah, that's it. I was just thinking, so yeah, if somebody, you were, oh, I found the article. Yeah, it was a, uh, a TU, let's see, you probably know this, this chapter. Um, Cooley Region TU? Exactly. Yep. Yep. They've done a lot of work around here. Yeah, Cooley Region. Yep, that's it. So they're in there. Yeah, lacrosse. All oh, right. So they got all your the areas you talked about. So yeah. So I mean, there's a great um, there's a great article here, a long article that covers everything. I'll put a link to that one. It was Kurt Reese. It was it was only a couple of years ago. He did a kind of getting started on trout fishing the driftless, right? In the driftless. Yeah. So that's a good resource. And also one all throughout there that I use quite a bit is um, is Onyx Maps. It's kind of a hunting yes. app, but yeah, they have a great. Um, you can download right all the land ownership stuff and then you can see it real time as you're out there correct and th- and then you can put wait i use onyx and you can put waypoints in and you can put notes in there oh yeah and and i like it because i can color code the access points yep to say yes i've been here and i've actually put notes on there and I, and this is you know a grade a this one might be a lower grade that you hit only if you're already in the area and i, I got a few that have marked black it's like no, it's not worth it for me. <laughs> right. That's cool. They hit, they hit that stretch. So if we looked, well, you could do that too, right? You, <laughs> we won't do that this one, but you could send, you know, you could send your, probably all your GPS points to somebody, right? Pretty easy. Uh, I'm not sure about Onyx will do that or not. Yeah. Uh, just because I haven't checked, because I have a friend who'd like a few of them and we just haven't gotten sat down together to figure out how to get them onto his 
Oh yeah, how to do it. I know there's a way to do it. Yeah, but I'm not quite sure how. Yeah, so. Okay, well, well, that gives us a little primer on the drift list, and there's a couple resources. Let's talk a little on the euro. Just, um, just give us, uh, you know, kind of go into because I know everybody does a little bit different. We say euro nymphing, but there's all sorts of different types and ways to do it. And I'm sure you know yours is a little bit different than the next person. But um, so you mentioned the gear. So you like a two weight if it's not super windy, um, and you're talking how long is that rod? Uh, ten feet. Yeah, ten feet. So ten foot two weight, and then talk about the line. What's your what's your line of choice here for for euro? It will depend on the water I'm going to be fishing and how heavy I think I'm fishing fly. Oh right. Let's take that little. Say it's a, you know, like you said, average kind of fifteen twenty feet. And what would be an average? Something like that. How deep would you be fishing in something like that? Um, I would probably have my cider probably about three and a half above my fly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Three point three and a half feet. Um, as three and a half, four feet as a starting point. And then it can adjust from there. Usually what I do is I'll start out with a 022 level line. And I've been working more on finesse techniques lately. So I've been using a 10 foot liter of liter material going into another 10 feet of tippet and then i'll use uh, markers to put the cider onto the tippet and i've been primarily fishing just one fly because a lot of times lately i'm, t- I'm testing out new flies seeing how they work what i need to do with them so rather than have t- a two fly rig on there i've been fishing just one fly and so one of the biggest differences lately is the how lightweight and the great feel coming out of a lot of the Euronifting rods, enabling you to do more of a finesse technique than you have in the past. You know, they used to think Euronifting was a big old check nip dragging along the bottom with another fly. Yeah. Now, with these small streams in that and the finesse technique, you can fish a much smaller, lighter fly to get down to the bottom. And so I've been working more on that technique, but now you go on on to what are the limitations of that? Well, it's much harder to cast and you really need to practice it to be good. Um, Sometimes you need heavier weight to get to the bottom because of current or wind basically drag on everything sometimes you need a heavier fly than you would like and for me if i'm using too large of a fly the finesse setup doesn't work as well and what i'll do in that then is i still use an you know level line and nymphing line but then i'll go to maybe 10 feet of indicator line then i'll go down to maybe about six feet of tippet from that and six feet of tippet. Okay. Yeah. And then again, it depends on where I'm doing. Maybe I'll go from four to six feet on that. And so it's a little bit heavier, but it can handle for me larger, heavier flies easier. Yeah. And, and walk us through that again. So, so let's take the, um, you start out mentioned the 3.5, walk through the, uh, that line again. So you've got your, and what was the line? So the starting out point, the line you're going to be using okay. up there. Yeah. Okay. So for the fly line, I use an 022 level line. Okay. Um, there are several manufacturers who make 
good stuff out there. Um, SA, Courtland, their level lines are very similar. I happen to like two different ones. For the winter, I like a braid core because it doesn't stiffen up like the monocord does. So for cold temperatures, I like a braid core. Warmer weather, I'll use a monocore. Then I'll go into about 10 feet of um, leader material, stiffer leader material, usually about a 0.018 is what I've been doing right now. Then I'll go into another 10 feet of five or six X tippet. Some people will use 7x i break that too often um so i'll, I'll use a 6x and then you can use scafires there there's a paint marker and i just can't remember the name of the paint marker that i found out recently about and put my indicator on the tippet and typically that's three and a half to four feet above my fly that's it perfect so so that walks us through that and um and we got the rod. So when you're in there and you, you know, you're fishing, let's just take it to that stream. You're fishing a smaller, one of these smaller creeks or kind of smaller, you know, average for that area up there. You know, how do you approach the water? So you feel like, um, describe that if you're coming up to an area, maybe you haven't fished, what, what are you doing there? First thing as you go up is take, you come up the stream, take a look and read the water. Decide where your best fishing points are going to be. You know, is it a pocket water section? Is there a little narrow section to go through? Is there, you know, two cur currents coming in? Read the water to figure out where you're going to want to fish, where your best lie is. Then you have to figure out how are you going to fish it? Um, because a lot of times this could almost be called contact fishing because you're in contact with the stream. You're not casting very far. The water can be very clear and you're easy to see. So how are you going to approach the water without the fish seeing you? And there's times where I'm on my knees. There's maybe a low, low brush line along the stream, and I'm trying to hide behind the brush and cast over the brush to get in there so they don't see you. Yeah, you might do like a little, just a, like a flip cast or something, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm, to get close, because what's surprising is around here, if the water's uniform, fairly uniform in depth, and then you have a small little pocket that's maybe a foot deeper, fish can pile up in there. And if you're not paying attention, you go walking. If you just go walking right up on it, boom, fish to scatter. Yeah. And not only did you blow that hole up, they're running up to other holes, <laughs> potentially impacting that. Right. So, so in a lot of cases, this is stealthy fishing. Yeah. This is like, uh, I think of Devin Olson, right? This is tactical fly fishing. Yeah. You're in, this is like, you're down on your hands and knees and crawling through the brush. Like you said, you got in the summertime, you got all sorts of nasty poison plants and stuff and you're, you're in it. Yeah. <laughs> so is that no. pretty much most of the time you're kind of trying to stay, you're low and stealthy. You're not, um, and it's thick. Are the banks pretty thick? Is that what it looks like too? Uh, later in the year, it can be. It, a lot depends on the area. There's areas where cattle are grazing. So it's kept lower, you know, so the, it's usually lower all the way across the creek. Maybe there's a couple of, of brush here or there, but it's not all brushy. So you can't, you have nothing to hide behind. So in that case, yeah, you're, 
you're making as long as the cast as you can while you can still control the fly and feel the contact and hide from the fish. So sometimes you have a great your own area, but you just can't get to it without being seen. And it makes it very hard. That that's where you know you kind of do on your knees. You extend your cast maybe a little further than you should for good technique, but you need to get it out there. Yeah. And a lot of times that's where I'll carry both a urine lymphing rod and a dry fly rod and decide, you know, I can't fish it right. So I'll throw a dry fly in there, maybe a dry dropper or a terrestrial and then work up to the next area. Yeah. How do you fish it when you're doing the Euro? If you got that, like you said, that setup you have on there, it's a little bit lighter. How are you fishing that? How are you getting that fly down? What does that look like once the fly hits the water? Are you casting kind of a little bit above where you think that fish is or what's that look like? You need to cast above where you think the fish is to give your fly time to get down. How far? Because the Euro sinks, right? A lot of these times you're using a tungsten bead. It's sinking really quick. Are you, you know, are you casting uh, like a foot or, or, you know, or quite a bit above the fish? It depends on the water depth and the water speed and the weight of your flies. The deeper, the faster, and the lighter fly you have, the further above the fish you're going to have to get cast in order to get the fly to sink to the bottom for you to maintain contact and then you have the additional issue of if the fly is too light the drag is too strong it's going to lift your fly out of the area yeah and you know that because it's not well, what's your signal to know you're at the right depth that you're just kind of instantly getting down and, and feeling some bottom you should feel a tick every so often not even on every cast but every you know four or five casts you should feel the bottom because you don't necessarily want to be right on the bottom but you need to be able to feel the bottom to tell that you're in the right general area. So if you're dragging the bottom, you know you're too deep. And you need to make a change of some sort. Keep your rod tip up higher so there's less line in the water. Maybe a lighter fly is needed for that area. Um, and with, with some of the lighter techniques and some of the shallow areas I fish around here, it's not just weight that's an issue. It's sink rate and drag. So if, I, if I'm fishing down, say, four feet to the bottom, I might be able to get away with, let's call it a Pertagon fly with a 3.5 millimeter tungsten bead. They'll get down to the bottom pretty fast. And generally speaking, there's enough weight to keep it down there through all the drag issues and, and water currents issues. Now, let's say I move 50 feet up and I hit a little riffle area that's two feet deep but there's a few pockets in there and there's a lot of fish in the riffles i cast that same pertagon with that same 3.5 millimeter bead it's going to drop to the bottom so fast and snag up yeah because it's too shallow so you can go with a little bit lighter fly but if you stick with the pertagon it's still going to sink down very quickly so you go with a lighter fly and a different profile Maybe I go, instead of a protagon, I use something with natural dubbing and a thick dry fly hackle collar on it. It's a little bit stiffer than, than soft tackle. And something to induce more drag into the fly so it sinks a little bit slower so you're not snagging up nearly as much in those shallow waters. So it's weight and drag really affect what you use where you use it. Right. 
right? And you mentioned a few flies. I wanted to, I want to touch on that um, here in a second. I, I did want to touch on the casting as well. You mentioned uh, Ed Jaworski. We did a little episode. He covered some casting. He's got a he's got a great book on it. Uh, when you're casting this, um, talk about that. You're casting the Euro setup. You know what are your what are your tips there? Is that um, you know is that the you find pretty challenging thing for people to pick up? Uh, if if they're doing it for the first time, yes, because it's a totally different technique. You're casting the fly, not the line. And if you're going with the more finesse, you have to impart a lot of power into your cast to get that tiny little fly out there. And so the harder you try sometimes, the worse your aim is. <laughs> and so that's where a lot of the practice comes in. That's where for beginners, it's easier for them to cast a slightly heavier rig and heavier fly to learn it and to get used to it. Yep. And so a lot of it is like a tuck cast. You want to send it out there, but you don't want to lay the, the fly lance parallel to the water and you're lying straight out like you would with the dry fly. Cause then there's a very long arc before that fly will hit the bottom and you've missed a lot of fishable water. Whereas if you do say like a, a tuck cast, you've got uh, Joe Humphrey's upper downer, um, the oval tuck cast mm -hmm. that will get it out there, but it will tend to stop above the water a little bit and the fly will drop down with a little bit of slack in there. So it can do a bit more vertical yep. drop. I, I go back to, you ever have that perfect dry fly cast? And you needed five more feet of line out there because <laughs> your fly hit the end and it jerked back. Oh, right. Yeah. That's kind of what the tuck cast is like. It'll get out there, but it stops and it will drop straight down and it has a little bit of slack built up so it can get down to the bottom without doing that slow arc. Yeah. Yeah. So you want it to drop straight and then once it hits, drop straight down, then you're, you're kind of picking up on your, you're trying to keep everything off the water, right? In a straight, direct connection as you're fishing. Yes. Uh, another way you can do is you can cast, do a, a very forceful cast and straight into the water and kind of force it down a little bit harder. Mm. How do you do that? Just by holding, like stopping the rod and the line and, and how do you get it to forcefully like the tuck it down into the water? Basically you'll make your cast, you'll, you'll stop above water. Your rod will not be parallel to the water. It'll be up at a little bit of an angle. Mm-hmm. Think of it maybe in that 30 to 40 degree range to the water, something like that. And again, it varies for how far out you are versus how close you are. Um, one thing you need to watch for in some places around here is when you make a lazy cast and the fly comes back too far up behind you and you meet a tree. Yeah. So you need to keep it, generally speaking, you need to keep your flies lower in height right and that's the whole thing depending on your situation you might have to do a yeah tuck cast like sidearm or yeah you try right Th this is not like there's one set cast, and that's actually what ed mentioned on that episode he's like there's not one you know one exact cast for every situation right it's like you know that you can if you learn the basics right the the principles then you can do anything yeah and sometimes there's enough weight where i've put on a, a jig streamer because I come across some slightly slower water that's not good for urinephine. But I, I have a heavier jig streamer on there. I can work that out 
kind of fishing is a little bit like a, a dry fly cast, make a couple of false casts out there to get some more line out. And so you do it that technique. Or you just, if you're closer, you can still use that jig fly just like a smaller fly for true contact nymphing. Right. A lot of ways to do it. Yeah. And as you can tell, by the way, I explain it. I'm not a great teacher, especially when it comes to just explaining it. I can show you how it's done a whole lot easier than I can explain it to you. Right. No, then there's plenty of, uh, you know, we've got plenty of uh, resources and videos we can link out to on some of that, uh, the casting for sure. Um, yes. But I want to dig into on this, you know, and I think you did a good job of explaining this because it's, uh, you know, getting the small creeks, right? That's a little bit different than if you're fishing, you know, you're nipping a big river on the edges or something like that. I mean, this is definitely, um, you know, sounds like a little bit, a little bit more work than it would be. Um, although you're, you're in close. I mean, what is the, other than getting down below and not spooking the fish, are there any other tips when you're fishing spring creeks to, you know, to get to those fish or is, have you kind of explained it? I mean, to get in, to get in position, right? Is it, I mean, literally you're sneaking down typically from downstream, sneaking up to them. Yes. I, I really do not like fishing downstream your own nipping. If I have to get in above, I'll make as wide of a swing around the, uh, the stream as I can and then fish up and then go down and, and then fish up again. Oh, right, right, right. Because one thing with this type of water, Spring Creek's in that are, the fish are spooky. If you think there's no fish here, go along the bank, stomp your foot, cast a shadow over the water and generally you'll you'll fee, see fish scatter um i can't tell you how many times where i'm fishing and i got to go around a tree and i get around the tree and i take a step and there's a beautiful hole and the fish just scatter you never even knew it was there it's not like um i fished the white down in arkansas down uh rim shoals you're nipping down there that water is, is so fast. There's so much noise in that you can get extremely close to those fish here. Generally speaking, you can't get that close. Today's episode is presented by Fairflies, who was founded with the idea of finding ethical solutions to fly tying materials and products. They've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized groups, both in the U S and abroad. They've got a lot of amazing stuff going. I can't uh, say enough about Fairflies. Um, definitely, uh, it's been exciting to connect with Jeff and the crew and hear everything they have going, not only through their 5D brushes and everything they have going, the fly tying materials, but they got tools. Of course, the fly fur um, is, all these products are just made to make fly tying a little bit easier, faster, and, uh, and a little more pizzazz. Pizzazz, that's... That's kind of an old word. I don't know if I should use that word. Um, uh, so they've got Wasatch Custom Angling Tools. Uh, they've recently um, connected with that brand, and they're now um, selling over 50 tools, and there's something for every tire um, with these beautiful handcrafted tools. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash fairflies right now. Check out what they have going with their brushes and all the other materials. They've also got some conventional stuff coming that's a little sneak peek for you. Conventional, conventional stuff. So if you are a, uh, what do you call that when you when you flip over, you're a, um, you go both ways, right? Um, that's what I think actually a lot of a lot of us are. Uh, we go both ways. So so check them out, Fairflies, right now.
let's dig into flies a little bit on. I want to talk because you have the zoetic flies and you tie a lot of Euro nymphs. I wanted to talk a little bit about that because there's, you know, you always see the flies and they're always these little, you know, beads, these tiny little streamlined things. Um, yeah, describe when you get into tying some of these flies, like as far as the design or when you're creating these, I mean, cause there's these standard ones, like you mentioned the Paragon, there's other ones. What does that look like for you when you come in and sit on the vice, you know, on that fly? Are they, are they all over the place on what you're tying there or what it looks like? Or are they all pretty similar? Well, for Paragons, the only difference is what material are you using? Um, thread, wire, tinsel. Are you using some Coke de Leon for the tail? Do you even have a tail? Do you put a wing case on it? A Pertagon is a Pertagon is a Pertagon is pretty much. You put it on a jig hook or you put it on a check nymph hook, something like that. There's not a lot of differences. And so it's what color combinations do I want to play with? What do I think would work? Um, I have attractors that are like a use a sulky silver metallic they're dark um rainbow i think thinks dark rainbow so it's a multicolor one it's it's a true attractor fly i have some that look more like a betas you know it, it's kind of got some olive gas gasoline look to it uh dubbed collar on it something that looks a little bit more natural so a pertagon is yeah, that's your all-around. Yeah, that, that's a good all-around. It's just, do I want it to make it look a little bit more natural versus a tractor, and what do I want to do with it? Yeah, so that's pretty good. And then the other ones, and you do, it's kind of the same thing, attractors versus, you know, maybe you're getting more specific on a matching, right, some hatch out there. Do you find, I mean, what are, on the driftless out there in these spring creeks, what are the, throughout the year, what do the hatches look like? Are you tying flies? Do you have specifically for, say, March, April, May, or how does that look? Um, I'll do some that are kind of general purpose for a pattern. I have a dark insect. I have a light insect. Um, maybe I have something that looks buggy because I, I put dubbing on it. Um, so we have a lot of midges year round. So if you want to do droppers, any type of dropper that, you know, the little midge one is really great. We've got a lot of blue wing olives. We've got sulfurs. We've got mayflies. There are some trico up there. There's a few places that have um, Hendrickson uh, mm. hex. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a good variety of bugs. Oh, wow. Sounds like you got a little bit of everything and lots yeah. of uh, any stoneflies mixed in there. Yep. A lot of stoneflies. They tend to be a little bit smaller than what you'll see out west. But early in the year, dark little bug could be a little mayfly, could be a big mayfly, a little stonefly, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so what I tend to do is I tend to go light, dark, attractor, maybe something just more muted in that uh, for the Pertagons. And then I'll do something. Uh, one of my favorite flies is what I call a pink hog. It's kind of a cross between the pink squirrel and the tungsten brush hog. It has a pink bead. A real rough, scraggly, dubbed body, and that's just the general. What's it imitate? Nothing. It's it's buggy looking. Yeah. Would you call that an attractor? Um, the pink bead would be the attractor portion. Otherwise, it's kind of just a, a general general 
Yeah. Simulating, right? It's kind of not. Yeah, simulator. It kind of looks like a bug. Does it look like anything specific? No, not really, but the fish really like it. Yeah, they like it. Yeah, and then I'll do something. I have a Purple Prince Charming jig, um, which is all synthetic materials. It's, no, Purple Tinsel. I have a light um crystal flash wing on it i've got well i do have some there so i've got some dubbing around the collar to help slow the sink rate a little bit what's it really look like again i can't really say as it goes deeper the purple looks a little bit more brown in that it's just a very good fly for me up here especially as as it warms up um then especially early in the year leeches patterns are great so i'll do um you know a beaded myers mini leech i have what i call the sparky leech which is is a tricolor leech maybe it's a leech maybe it could be a crayfish or a damselfly potentially for looking at it good leech earlier early in the year then i've got you know something to look more like a sulfur or yellow sally in color so I, I, when I'm designing a fly, I take a look at what's the purpose. Get down, stay down, sink a little bit slower. Do I actually want to imitate something specifically? Or do I just want something to look buggy? And I, I tend to go for the attractor and something that just kind of looks buggy-ish. Yeah. Buggy. So, so all your fly, it's not necessarily... So a fly that's a streamline that's just basically got one material on it. It's made just to get down. That fly can work, but you're saying sometimes the buggier ones work better than, I mean, when would you use that? Like you got the buggy one versus the, the paradigm that's just a, a thin noodle of one little color. Uh, the thin noodle one color, you know, I have what, what I call the tequila sunrise paradigm, which is some yellow going, blending into orange, kind of like a tequila sunrise look. That's kind of like my, if I want to do a sulfur or a PMD, um yellow sally that's the fly i use for that type of time if i want a pure attractor one i have one called the blue blood it's very thin it's got a blue body silver bead and a red collar that's it that's that's pure attractor um, a lot of times if i want to look for something a little bit more natural i'll move away from the protagon and i'll make um the body out of a sparkle yarn you know, maybe a darker brown or a cream color that has just a little bit of sparkle in it. And that's just the body. I don't even necessarily do a rib. Right. Right. That's good. Then pheasant tails, you know, Frenchies are great up here. Oh, right. You know, for something that looks a little bit more natural. Right. Right. And then you can imitate. Uh, what would you be like? A BWO or what? What would you be doing? Time? What would that? Im- you mentioned the midges, BW, all these different hatches. What would the Frenchie potentially imitate? Could be a BWO, especially if you go, you know, olive in color. Yep. Uh, could be a mayfly. Could be, you know, I've got a black, black Frenchie. Could be a stonefly. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Frenchie to me is a general purpose one too. I'll time up more natural. I'll do black. I've been playing around one that's um, dyed pink, 
just for a change of pace. It's not very pink. There's just a kind of little hint of pink in there for something a little bit different that I've been playing with. And so far it's been okay, but nothing great. I have to keep playing with it, see if I want to do something with it. Gotcha. So again, it's, it's more general purpose for me. Yeah. Keeping it general. No, it's the way, and, and you have a bunch of different patterns you've noted here. Some of them, we're not going to dig into everything, but it sounds like when you get behind the vice, you, you know, you're always keeping it oh, just a little mix, right? And that includes sizes and weights. So any one of these flies, if you're tying a Frenchie, you're going out there, you know, fishing, you know, Euro, you're going to be having a different, like what, three different sizes of weights for each fly, something like that. Yeah. Generally speaking, the way I do it for, for consistencies and for selling to people, I tend to go 12 down to 16 and maybe I'll have a four millimeter bead on the 12, a three, five on the 14 and a three on the 16, let's say. And maybe if somebody wants an 18, that will have a bead size smaller or in a size 10, there'll be a bead size bigger. And so I, I, I tend to do with the hook size, I change the size of the bead. Because otherwise, if I'm just playing around for myself, I may tie a larger fly. I may actually tie a size 10 hook, but I'll use a bead that I typically put on a 16. A little bit bigger, but it's much slower sink rate. But when I look for flies to sell, I try to keep that consistency of hook size to bead size so people have a little bit better idea on what it will do. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And, uh, and what would be, you know, if you've mentioned all these, you got, you know, again, take it down to that. You mentioned the one fly, you know, we have this top fly, a uh, little challenge we're doing. Um, you know, if you had to pick one fly, uh, what, what would that be? You know, it's this, I guess you could take it to the springtime. You mentioned March, April, May, um, and for Euro nymphing, is there one, if you had to pick one that you'd kind of go out there with during that time? My pink hog. Oh, the pink hog. The pink hog, I will take trout fishing anywhere in the country perfect i fished and i've had french french fish it east coast to west coast north to south it's caught fish everywhere now a good fly in the hands of a good fishermen will catch a lot of fish the mediocre fly in the hands of good fishermen will catch a lot of fish so i as a tire i would love to say my fly makes all the difference it doesn't what will make a difference though is that right mix of weight sink rate and what profile they're looking for and so that may vary but i but i have a couple different sizes of it it's just a for me the pink hog has that little bit of a tractor with the pink uh, a buggy body and that it's just a good all-around simulator if i was just using the true searching pattern that would be my first one to go to gotcha gotcha yeah and it's uh I'm looking, I think I'm on your site. Um, it, yeah, it's really cool looking. It's got kind of the hairs here looking body material with a lot of guard hair. And then you got a little, like a tail of like, what is that? Like flashaboo or crystal flash or some sign? Yeah, it, it's a rainbow. Rainbow is the lighter rainbow. It's more the pastel one. Yeah. Because uh, that is hairline. Somebody else's crystal flash makes a brighter one. Yeah. Same thing. And then sizes you have like on, and I'm not sure if these are all updated, but like 10 through 14, is this, are these typically bigger? Yeah. The, uh, the size 12 will put a four millimeter bead on it. I will go up to 10 with the bigger bead. Um, I got some people who fish out West and some bigger waters. They want that heavier bead for out there. 
And on site, you'll see the one that has the black bead and the pink collar. The one I, I fish, and I need to update the picture on it, is the pink bead. And for the same size, the pink bead is a heavier bead than the black bead. And so you can, you can go down that way. But typically 12, 14 are the two ones I do. And I have a size 16 version of it with a very, very light pink bead on it. That's a great little dropper. Mm, yep. I call that one the piglet. <laughs> that's right. This, and this is the pink hog is AKA the squag. Yes. It got the name squag because Matt at the fly shop could never remember because he was calling it the pink squirrel which is oh, right. a huge fly out here and that. And so, well, it's kind of squirrel hog. So we called it the squawk. Yeah. And so I call it the pink hog, AKA the squawk. So if somebody who's been through the fly shop, they can also find it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So you're tying and on your tying, are you tying? Like if somebody wanted to get flies, you know, from some of the stuff we've been talking about, are you selling, um, you know, directly from your site or more to shops or how does that look? If somebody's interested in connecting here. Um, I sell from the website. There's a um, couple flies that the fly, the driftless angler has out here. They've got uh, three flies of mine in their shop. You can get them from there. They, they have the pink hog um, thread, Frenchy blowtorch version. And then a black and copper and purple, kind of more like a stonefly type one of a thread Frenchy version too, but it's got purple instead of, so they've got three there. Um, I sell to some guides out West. They like the pink hogs out there, but primarily it's the website or at some of the shows. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. And I mentioned that top fly challenge, uh, wetflyswing.com slash top fly uh, we're giving away some fly boxes and flies there. I'll, uh, I'll also add this to our list. We got where uh, people can choose uh, their top fly. So I'll add this one to the list of our guests' top flies, and then we're gonna uh, and then we're gonna choose one, and then I'm gonna try to tie it up and see see how well or how, <laughs> how poorly I could do. So uh, so there's that. We got that going. Um, yeah, I think uh, you know I touched. We touched on a little bit of what I was thinking today. You know, Spring Creeks, uh, Euro niffing. Obviously, the Euro stuff is so detailed, and it's right. There's never one way to do it. But I think you've touched on the Spring Creeks. We, we got a little taste of it. You know, anything else? You know, I know. Um, you know, this isn't always easy digging into the the you know the exact tips and tricks. So do you feel like we touched on a little bit of somebody was new to the the drift list? They could kind of get started with what we talked about today. I think so. It's a good general point. They've got, you know, a couple of resources. You know, they've got the, the Driftless Anger Fly Shop. They've got the DNR websites out there mm-hmm. to do a little review for. Um, the Cooley Region TU, a lot of times their website will have information on it. Oh, nice. So you can check that, that out too. Because um, when I talk Driftless, I tend to talk just Wisconsin. There's also part of Iowa and Minnesota is also part of the Driftless. Right. Because when we're talking about the seasons, one difference here is in the middle of October, trout fishing ends in Wisconsin because that that's for spawning and breeding. Iowa, because they do so much stocking in there, Iowa goes year round. So from the middle of October, if I want to go trout fishing, I just drive over to Iowa, which has some excellent rivers too. Um, they just don't have 
as much as we have here, but it's still excellent fishing. Minnesota, I don't remember if their season's year-round or not. So mostly, primarily, what we were talking about was driftless Wisconsin, smaller spring creeks. Yeah, you, exactly. A lot of it will still go to Iowa or Minnesota. Yep, that's um, perfect. But not all. So there, there's a huge area driftless to explore. Yeah, yeah. No, this is great. I think that I was trying to focus today like spring creeks and really some of that smaller stuff. And I think we touched on it, uh, at least to give people, if they have questions, they can connect with you you know, at uh, zoeticflies.com. Um, give us one random one before we get out of here on, um, so you've, it sounds like you do a lot, the show season, you're busy, you're tying. Uh, do you have any other, uh, do you have a hobby you want to throw out there that if you aren't fly fishing, uh, something else that's, if you weren't fly fishing, what else would you be doing? Uh, during the right time, pheasant hunting. Oh yeah. I like the upland pheasant. I've got a pointing pointer. I've got a German wire pointer right now. Love to go out and see her work. And no joke is I get a meal and I, I get some tying materials. Yeah. That's a great thing. Pheasant hunting, man. And is that, that is known, right? You, because you got all the, all the great farmland, right? There's people and they're planting them. I mean, and with pheasant hunting out there, is it, is it something where you can just kind of go out in the wild or is it more like you need to kind of go to a place where they're planting birds and stuff like that? Uh, where, where I am, you have to go more where they're planting birds because this area is not typical pheasant area because they're more of a prairie open area bird i'm near the kickaboo valley reserve there's a lot of land out there and they will plant birds out there throughout the year throughout the hunting season and that's pretty close so i'll just go there and hunt um i i can drive five minutes and be in a couple different areas to hunt i've taken trips in the past with friends going out to north or south dakota oh right or two, which is just a riot. But for here, I like it because I can drive a little bit, hunt for an hour, come back home, and really, you haven't lost much of the day. Right. You know? That's it. So other than that, it's, you know, I'll do that. Yeah. And you probably got, like you said, you got 35 acres at your place. You could probably uh, place some pheasants on your land, couldn't you? A little too woody. I, oh, too I, woody have, yeah. uh, I have a lot of deer and turkey coming through here. Oh, right. Turkey. Nice. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's cool. So I haven't decided if I want a turkey hunt or not. I, I yeah. got a couple of friends who know, know what they're doing. So at some point I may, you know, bring them out here. Yep. Yeah. Turkey is another big one. There's all these hunting. I mean, I, we, we occasionally, I talk to people. I mean, I think there's a good chunk of people listening here, probably at least half, you know, the people or, uh, you know, they do some hunting as well. It makes sense. Obviously hunting, fishing, um, but there's just so much. That's always a challenge, right? You got all these different hunting and fishing. It's like, okay, where am I going to focus my energy? That's the challenge. I know because when I was solidly doing the show circuit, during hunting season is when I really needed to crank up the tying. Oh, right. To get prepped for the show season because I, I could never find a way to plan enough to die consistently through the summer to build up the stock for the start of the show season because I was too busy fishing. Yeah. Oh man. So fish, time, fish, fish. Yeah. You got fish time, fly tying, and then you also got your, uh, yeah. Hunting. How many ties are you still tying a lot? I mean, like what's a, are you doing when it's busy? How are you tying like dozens and dozens of flies per day? Um, I try to limit it to maybe five or six dozen flies a day. Yeah. Um, you no, know, that's if I, if I spread it out properly and I don't have, 
an order coming in from the fly shop or, or a big order from a group of people coming in. I, I like this that way. And maybe I tie one pattern that day and the next day I tie a different pattern. Um, I'm not trying to compete with the variety of flies of a fly shop or an online fly shop or something like that. I could never do it, never keep up either the variety of flies or the quantity of flies. So I, I focused more in on primarily the Pertagon, a few other flies that people would want so they can do it from there and keep it enough where I can tie, I can still enjoy it. And I'm not trying to tie 12 dozen or more flies a day, five, six, seven days a week. Like people who, who actually are making their living from tying flies. That's a lot of work. They're cranking out a ton of flies. Yep. I'm doing this one because I enjoy it. And two, as I joke, it's to help pay for my hunting and fishing habit. That's right. So, so I don't have to have the volume that a lot of people yep. have to. That's it. That's huge. Right. So you're not definitely forced to be like, okay, I got to sit down and tie, you know, eight dozen flies every single day and, you know, to meet the the quota or whatever. Right. That's, that is not, not easy to do. No, it's, it's not. It takes a lot of discipline to sit down to do that. And especially for me to tie one pattern day after day after day. Yeah. I get bored with that. That's the thing. But you do tie the one pattern when you go in there, you tie one, which is efficient, right? You got your five dozen plies, just tie one, tie five dozen of that one pattern. Yes. Yeah. And and then the next day I'll work on a different pattern. Maybe I do a Pertagon and the next day I'll do the pink hog and the next day I'll work on uh, the Prince Charming jig, you know, different techniques, spread it out a little bit. Maybe I'll play around. I've been playing around, uh, with foam flies, with terrestrials, trying to find a simpler way. Part of my tying philosophy is keep it simple. If somebody has seven materials on a fly, I want to try to tie it with five and have it just be as effective, faster, easier to tie. I've been playing around with trying a better way to tie a hippie stomper. Mm. Ease that up, make it simpler. Well, my results say go back to the original hippie stomper. All those parts. It works. You know, when I've been trying to simplify it, take a step away or something like that, it just hasn't worked out right. Some flies are just like that. Um, Ed Ingalls, bubble back, BWO merger. Well, why can't I just put the bead on the hook instead of the whole hassle of tying it up top? Well, Ed's version outfishes my version five to one. Oh, it does even. So it's not just the fisherman there. It's the fly. There's something about, you know, certain flies you can't take away. You can't change up something often just changes how it works, how it looks, maybe the way it drops or something about it. It just doesn't work as well. You're right. So it's like, you can't simplify it. No. Now you can change it up and it still, still might be effective, but it won't quite be as good. And so it's, what can I simplify? and still have it be a very good fly. Nice, nice. That's, I think, a perfect way to wrap it up. You mentioned Ed's name a few times. He's obviously a very, uh, you know, upper level on the fly tying, you know, and all that as well. So, well, we'll put some links in the show notes and, um, you know, we'll, we'll send everybody out to, like I mentioned, zoeticflies.com and uh, 
Yeah, Tom, thanks for, I uh, just want to thank you for coming on today and sharing your knowledge here and on the Driftless and Spring Creeks. And um, yeah, we'll send everybody out your way and keep in touch with you as we move forward. Yep, thanks a lot for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. So there it is. Pretty amazing stuff. Wetflyswing.com slash 353. 353. We'll get you some links and maybe we'll have a little list of some flies over there potentially. I'm not sure we're going to have something going on if you check it out right now. We'd definitely love to hear from you if you get a chance and you've been enjoying this podcast and remind you at the start, just head over dave at wetflyswing.com. Send me a quick email and just say whatever you want to say. Let me know you've been listening to the show. That helps me uh, continue going strong. Reminder, coffee talk, wetflyswing.com slash coffee talk, a great way to get free coffee from anglers. You can just enter there and get a chance to win some anglers. Uh, I think we're giving out the, the five, the dry dropper packs. And, uh, and I did hear a cool email from Dennis D. Dennis D sent me an email and it was really awesome because he made note that on top of a bunch of other great stuff in there, he gave me some information on guests. He also said that he's picked up a little bit of anglers coffee and that he knows that that's a way to support uh, this podcast and he's been doing it. So again, this is, uh, this is amazing stuff. Uh, we know it works. It's all about providing value. It's kind of like the value for value, right? We're, we're doing our best to kick it out here. And, uh, and in turn, Dennis D is given back by supporting anglers who supports us. It's like a perfect, perfect deal. Anglers is a great company doing great things. And we are trying to keep up with all the great goodness as well. So there you go, a little insight. Okay, what do we got? What do we got to riff on today? Let's grab the, the random thing. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to get out of here. I was going to grab something and and riff, but I'm not. I'm going to let you get out of here and get on to the next episode. Whatever you want to do, your life, get going, get rolling. But check back with us if you have a chance, anytime. would love to hear from you. And, uh, and just want to thank you for uh, supporting us. And I hope maybe you can catch up with us on one of these trips coming up this year. We got some, uh, we're heading out on the water so if you get a chance would love to get on the water with you and if you can't just connect with me online that would be actually um, a good second talk to me online all right i am gonna roll i hope you i hope you 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 are having a good afternoon and i hope you are having a good morning or maybe a good evening wherever you are in the world uh thank you for stopping by today and i am excited to get to that next episode Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.